truth, perspective, and growth. This is the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. It's more for them than just a quiet place for them to live. He wants them to become his covenant partners, his people. And his his vision is for them to declare his name among the, the nations, to represent him among the nations. And so to do that, they have to they have to rethink everything about their identity and their relationship to him. Well, today I'm super excited, and I know you're like, I always say that. You're right, I do. I'm always excited about my guests. But today I'm really excited about my guests because I just read her book. So right now this is kind of like a cool moment because I get to speak to the author of the book that I just read, and I loved it. And so today I have Dr. Carmen Imes who wrote an incredible book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Um, Dr. Imes, thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. This is fun. Awesome. Yes, uh, I, I'm, I think it's going to be an amazing uh, day today. So for some of my audience, they may not be familiar with you. They may not have read this book or known of some of your other work that you've put in out. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you get into the crazy field of biblical studies? Like, what? How did that happen? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and 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 how you got into the role of of studying scripture and being an author? Sure. So, for those who haven't known me before, I'm professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta, which is in Canada, uh, north of Montana. And I've been here for three years now, and I don't think as a kid I imagined that I would be teaching Old Testament. So that my journey in getting here is a bit winding. I would say that as a child, I imagined I would be a missionary, and I thought I wanted to do Bible translation. So when I was looking for a college, I looked for one that had a missions program and a Greek a program so that I could study and get ready for Bible translation. But along the way in college, I discovered a love for teaching. Hmm. And that presented me with a bit of a conundrum because I'm a woman and I thought women weren't supposed to teach Bible, Hmm. at least not to men. And so that sort of sent me on a trajectory of learning um, about what the scriptures say and then kind of leaning into what I felt like God was calling me to do. So I ended up um, actually getting married and my husband and I did become missionaries in the Philippines for two and a half years. And then we moved back to the headquarters of our mission, which was in North Carolina And while I was there, I got a chance to start on my master's degree. So I had always loved learning, and really the Bible has been my favorite topic even since childhood. And so um, although I didn't imagine myself teaching Old Testament, in some ways it's not a surprise that I'm doing what I'm doing today. Hmm. You just kind of has been a, a progress of of how it's developed your passion for scripture just yeah. turned into you. Yeah, te- you know, teaching in, scripture. In second grade, I remember starting a Bible Bible reading club that met at recess and we went out on the playground with our Bibles because I thought that was a better use of our time than playing and we started <laughs> reading in Genesis chapter 1 and we were going to make it all the way through and we didn't last long at all. <laughs> At least not as a group, but I kept going on my own. And so I think for my classmates, this is probably like, duh. Right. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Even if for me, it was a surprise. That's so cool. I didn't, I I was the opposite. I didn't, I didn't even know what the Bible was until I got saved. But um, Mm -hmm. I always, I always envy people um, 
Dr. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, is one of, another mm-hmm. guy that I really follow. And he says the same thing. He's the, I just, you know, fell in love with scripture and been reading it since a kid. I'm like, man, yeah. that's you're when your mind is so young and you absorb all mm-hmm. that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's like I had to really work to to get in it. Yes. So uh, yeah. that's incredible. And I hope and pray that my kids have that same passion. So that, mm-hmm. that that's that's amazing that um, that you've had it since such a young age. But what do you what reading your book? I can tell that this was not just something you're like, oh, I'm just going to write a book about God's name. This came from a di- this came from a different place. What stirred yeah. up the topic of this book? And and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was also the topic of your doctoral di- dissertation. So this it this was. this was the result of me- much labor and study, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did how did you pick that topic? How did that uh, come up? Yeah, so I did my master's at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, during my master's, I began to realize this is really what I want to do with my life. And so I started looking into doctoral programs. And one of my favorites that I found was Wheaton College. And Wheaton is a little bit different than other schools in the U.S. in that when you apply to the program, you actually apply with a topic in mind that you want to write about. Well, as a master's student, I didn't feel like I was in a great position to choose a topic to write a dissertation about because a dissertation is supposed to be something no one's ever done before. It's supposed to be at least a new angle on something. You're you're adding a new voice, a new perspective to things. So as a master's student, you haven't read widely enough to really know what still needs to be done. So because Wheaton expected us to have their a topic in mind, they also encouraged us as applicants to be in touch with the person we wanted to have supervise us and to begin working on that topic, dialoguing about it before we even applied. And so that's what I did. I wrote to Daniel Block and I said, you know, here are some ideas that I have. And we went back and forth on those ideas. And I said, but really you're nearing retirement. There must be things that you think still need to be done. So what are the topics you want to supervise? And I I felt a little bit like that was cheating to ask him, but I also felt like, you know, who better to know? And the, and the sure. worst thing he could say to me is that's cheating. Go yeah, find your yeah. own topic. But he yeah. was gracious enough to reply with a whole list of topics. Mm. And one of the topics on his list was the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. Mm. And he told me he was convinced that we had been reading it wrong. And he sent me a text of a sermon that he preached on it so that I could get a sense for his take on that passage. And I read the sermon and absolutely fell in love with the topic. And I think I liked it so much because it combines missions and biblical studies. Like it's a, it's a missional reading of that command. And I'd always felt unsatisfied by the command. It seems kind of petty to say just sure. well, don't use God's name as a swear word. So it's it's a little strange to have such a narrow command happening so early in the list of the Ten Commandments. And so to me, it made sense of the command itself, but it also fit beautifully into the wider scope of scripture and fit with my own sense of calling and participation in missions. So I chose that as my topic. I ended up spending uh, like five years working on that dissertation. And all the way through, they kept reminding us, you're not writing this dissertation for your family. You're not writing this for your friends. You're writing this for the guild. So don't try to, you know, use precise language. Don't try to be um, broad in the way that you're communicating. 
And But all the way through, I kept thinking, the church needs this. This is really important stuff. And it would actually change everything about the way we do church and the way we think of our identity as Christians. And so all the way through, I had in mind that I would want to rewrite it and represent it to a wider audience. And so that's what this book is. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're, you fall in the nerd category and you really like scholarly stuff, then you could check out the dissertation, which is published with Penn State University Press. And it's called Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, A Reinvestigation of the Name Command of the Decalogue. And you can tell from the title that it's very, <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, but the the new book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, I wrote with teenagers and uh, young adults and older adults in mind. Like I, I wanted it to, to hit the wide span of Christians who struggle to understand the Old Testament, who maybe struggle to know where they fit in God's economy, God's mission for the world. And I was trying to help people put their Bible back together. And that's absolutely why I love it, because I have a whole list of academic books. And I, I, too, I try as much as I can to stretch myself. And I like to I like to get into the dialogue of all those things. But uh, being a pastor, I always have the person in the front row in mind, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, reading your book, I was like, man, I just want every. And that, as a matter of fact, that's why I reached out to you, because I was like, I just want everybody to read this book. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're right. It revolutionizes and really... It transforms, which really should be how we look at God. But being in the West, we've, and that's a whole other topic of why we look at God the way we do. But mm-hmm. our perspective has been shifted by tradition and by um, the Reformation and by Enlightenment. And and so we, we have ended with this idea of God um, kind of being mad at us, right? And mm-hmm. he's, uh, yeah. you know, and he's... You know, but thankfully Jesus stepped in and now look, God's no longer mad and now we're good yeah. to go, you yeah. know, but, and, and it really, it's a really just low grade version of who our father really is and what mm-hmm. he desires for us. And so the idea of, um, the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain when understood fully, I think, like you said, like the, the way you use the word petty, it takes our perspective from the idea of God just being mad. And if we don't say his name, right, he's going to be mad at us Yeah, right. to, to no, my name is being bestowed upon you as a blessing mm-hmm. and, and you carry this blessing because I love yes. you. And it just changes yes. the whole way you view uh, yes. your, your life and your decisions you make and, and who you represent and, the security that you have that you may not feel living in an insecure world and all of yeah. these things. So I want to dive into that, but I love, uh, I love that you chose that topic because mm-hmm. I would agree with Dr. Block that it was an important topic to discuss. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad you chose it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And th- this is why I was attracted to working with Daniel Block because as he, I, w- I began reading his work and he consistently exhibits a passion for the Old Testament. He sees God's grace on every page. He has a book called The Gospel According to Moses, which Mm. gives you a taste of his approach to the Torah, to the Old Testament. He, He consistently sees God's grace and communicates it with passion and liveliness. He's the furthest thing you can get from a boring teacher. And I knew I wanted to become like him, and I wanted to to somehow be able to emulate his passion and his curiosity for things in the text. And, and also he communicates it to the church mm-hmm. in ways 
that he, he situates his scholarship within a life of faithfulness. He's not just a brain on a stick. It, it permeates his life and working with him for five years was one of the greatest privileges of my life. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I, I, I respect uh, his work. I'm actually about to read his book, uh, for the glory of God. Have you read that? Uh, I'm excited to get into that. I have actually not read that one. He was working on it while I was his student, but he had me working with him on other books. And so um, I think he probably published like eight books during my three years on campus with him. So yeah, he, he's an incredibly prolific author. And I think I came in, you know, as he was nearing retirement and he was just sort of pulling together a lifetime of research and scholarship and making it available to the church. So um, yeah, I, d- I haven't read that one, but I, I have it. And it's referred to by so many people as, as really helpful for thinking about worship in the church. Yeah. And it's another one of those topics that you don't hear a whole lot about. Um, right. So I'm excited to get into that. Yeah. So Back to back to your book because I really want to kind of uh, unpack it a little bit and give you opportunity to um, to give us some thoughts on it. One of the things that stood out that I feel is so practical for Christians uh, reading this book is the idea of Israel becoming a nation. A lot of times mm-hmm. we uh, we when we read the Old Testament, our minds uh, we follow just you know the trajectory of the Old Testament. They're like, okay, well Israel left Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and now they're in the land and now they're a nation. Mm-hmm. And we and we don't really put ourselves in the space of what it would be like leaving slavery and the oppression mm-hmm. of people and and probably the cruelty that they experienced on a day to day basis that left long-term traumatic, you know, impact in the, in the, in the minds of Israelites. And so, uh, one of the things that you, uh, said was that, uh, in your, in your book is Israel became a nation in the wilderness and there was this Mm -hmm. liminal space. And, uh, for some people who may not understand what liminal space is, can you kind of, um, unpack what that space was like? What does liminal space mean? Uh, and what were some of the dynamics of this time in the wilderness that Israel had to experience before they were able to become a nation that would bear the name of Yahweh? Sure. So the word liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which means threshold or doorway. And so the idea of liminal space is um, seasons of life or even just a ritual experience where you are transitioning from one place to another. So it's they're in between spaces. and Um, so for a long time, cultural anthropologists have used the language of liminality or liminal space to talk about transitional points in our lifespan development. So if you think of like a a tribe where there's a young man who's coming of age, so he's a boy, but he's reached the age of manhood. And so he's sent off into the wilderness and he has to survive on his own for a set length of time, maybe have a visionary experience or kill a certain animal or whatever, whatever that particular uh, people group defines as the coming of age ritual. Usually there's some nakedness involved, actually. They, they, they come and they, they are stripped and then put on new clothes and re-enter society with a new identity. So, so ritual studies is where liminality is most often talked about. But people are catching on to this idea and the fact that it's a really useful way of talking about the transitional periods in all of our lives, whether or not there's a ritual associated with it. Hmm. So anytime we're in between jobs, in between 
um, social statuses or identities. Uh, say, say if you're enga- an engaged couple, you're in liminal space because you've now committed to each other. You're planning to make a lifetime commitment to each other, but you haven't actually had the ceremony yet. So you're in that in-between space uh, where you're not single, really, but you're also not married. Um, and what I discovered as I studied Israel's experience in the wilderness is that they are indeed in liminal space. They have left Egypt behind mm. with all of all of what Egypt made them to be. So they were slaves. They're working for Pharaoh. They're working on his projects. They don't have their own rights. And God brings them out from there. And as much as they should be celebrating that, what we often see in the wilderness is them complaining. They are struggling to know where are they going to get their next meal? Who's in charge? Where are we going? When are we going to be there? How long will this take? Because like every human being, they crave order and predictability. And when God brings them out of Egypt, they lose that. Mm. And they're really chomping at the bit to get to the place where life can resume normalcy again. And in a really strange way, the entire world is in liminal space right now because of this pandemic. Yeah. So we have kind of collectively lost our rhythms. We've lost our normal ways of doing things. We have to rethink everything from how to get groceries, how to eat out, um, whether we get to go into to work or not, whether our children can go to school. So it's really interesting that as a as a global community, we're all going through liminal space. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of it on the other side. <clears throat> when this first happened, when the world kind of first went on lockdown, I said to my mom, watch this. We are going to see so much creativity come out of this season. Wow. Because as soon as you disrupt your routine and you have to think of alternative ways of doing things, it accesses creative parts of your brain. So yes, there's grieving. Yes, there's struggle, but there's also, we're being forced to rethink how Mm. we do life. And I think already we're seeing ways that people are really being creative. How can we resume shopping without infecting each other? Well, let's hang plexiglass and let's wear masks and let's have hand washing stations and whatever. So I think um, coming out of this, it will be interesting to see what stays, um, what, how are we reshaped in the ways that we uh, gather, in the ways that we do life together. And for Israel, they're in the wilderness as long as they are because they're not ready for the promised land. Yeah. God's brought them out of Egypt, but he actually wants more for them than just a quiet place for them to live. He wants them to become his covenant partners, his people. And his his vision is for them to declare his name among the, the nations, to represent him among the nations. And so to do that, they have to they have to rethink everything about their identity and their relationship to him. Mm. And it's so true that uh um when you say in your book you kind of paint the picture of this not being an easy task for Israel, you know, a lot of times I think it's easy for us to, to kind of almost be judgmental of Israel. Like, man, why don't they just get it together? Man, why, how could they forget the Red Sea? Or, you know, what, you know, what about, what about this? What, what about God doing that? And I I remember early on in my ministry working with um, foster care students who uh, aged out of foster care in Arizona at 18, they basically just cut you out and you have to go Mm -hmm. find a house, which is a whole, dilemma and it's a huge problem uh, right. because mentally they're not ready to be on their own they're not ready to support themselves and so 
they need this transitional period of of right. having formation and they don't always get this in the homes that they're in or whatever and and a, a lot of times um we miss that while reading old testament scripture we miss the fact that Israel was traumatized by what they experienced in Egypt mm-hmm. and uh very much on limbo of what's going on now cuz yeah. you know it's almost like you get conditioned into this is your reality and this is the only way you can live and you get outside of that reality and you are just you have no idea how to, you know, how to navigate. You've never led your own life. You've never right. had somebody right. lead you in love. It's always been right. oppression and do this and that. And so um, there's this space. And so th- through the dynamics of of Israel um, becoming, a, um, becoming a nation, do you feel the covenant as being something that's actually bringing this order to this community and it, it is now offering them a way uh, of, yes. hey, this is how you can live amongst each other? Yes, in, in I think that's way? exactly what's happening at Sinai. We tend to think, we we tend to, first of all, skip over the Old Testament laws because they're the most boring thing to read other than genealogies, which are a little bit worse even. Um, so we skip over the laws thinking they're boring, but we also feel like they're, um, maybe we object to them like God's being controlling or, Mm. or demanding. And what we miss is that God is speaking into a vacuum Mm. in which they've just left behind an entire life and he's rebuilding an entire community and reconstituting them as a nation. And he's letting them know, here's what life in freedom ought to look like. Here's, here's how to live in freedom in ways that are life giving. So he's, he's not actually putting them in chains again. He is showing them life-giving ways to live. You want a community of harmony? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you, want, you want to live at peace with each other? Don't steal. And so rather than cramping their style, he's actually upholding the rights of their neighbors. And I talk in the book, and I get this from Dr. Block again, um, talk in the book about the idea of the Ten Commandments being a bill of other people's rights. Yeah, that's so good. Because it constrains our own sort of unbridled greed and desire to get whatever we want or do whatever we want. And it it actually causes every person to rethink their own rights in light of how to be loving to our neighbor. Mm, and that's and that brings me to another question I had for you because uh this is something that I think maybe you just touched on something that may be a reason why Western minds struggle with reading the uh, the Old Testament is because um, – I'm sorry, let me get to there. Um, the idea of living as a community is hard mm-hmm. to grasp because in that time frame, God is teaching them to find their identity within a community of people – where mm-hmm. Western minds, we don't find our com- our identity in community. We find right. our identity in our dreams or our desires or our passions or yes. our things that we do. And so our life is formed around what am I going to do and accomplish in my life? And that's yes. going to form my identity. And yes. it's, that's completely foreign to the idea of what God was showing Israel through the covenant. So yeah. do you think that this presents challenges for Western minds to, to grasp this identity of covenant teaching them how to do community rather yes. than, than us saying, Oh, 
I, I'm not going to steal because I don't want him mad at me. And if I don't do that, I'm good. No, yeah. there's, a, there's a broader meaning. Does that? There is, is. There is. I think that we, we experience community, but we do so on an, on an elective basis. I elect to be part of this community, church community, as long as I feel like it's meeting my needs. And as soon as I feel like it's not, I elect I opt out and go choose a different community or I dress in a certain way to sort of identify with another community, but we can change these at will. They're not permanent. Mm. And so other than family, we're not really stuck with any community for our entire life. So we don't have to work out those more difficult parts of relating over the long haul. This is one of the things I really felt like the church needed to hear. And, and why I wrote this book is the concept that the people of God relate to him as a community, and they collectively bear his name, which means it's not just about me and Jesus in my closet. It's not about me praying, and I can think of religion as a private thing, but actually it's a public thing. My obedience to God is displaying his character to a watching world, and that's actually my vocation. My job is to represent him. And, and I think what we miss when we just talk about asking Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die is we miss that vocational piece of what it means to be part of the community of faith. This is not just about me and my eternal destiny. This is about entering into a really high calling, and it's a calling to represent God in everything I do. And we see that so clearly at Sinai where he places his name on them saying, you are mine. Now, don't carry my name in vain. Don't don't carry my name. Don't say that you belong to me, but then live no differently than your pagan neighbors. And if we can recapture that idea of belonging to God and representing him among the nations, I think it transforms our community and transforms our idea of ethics. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it almost makes our ethics missional because now our character is a part of what God is doing to redeem the world rather than I need to keep God happy so that me and him are good. It's no, you're good because he's your father. Your behavior is part of the mission of bearing his name in the sight of the nations and ultimately letting your life be a testimony of God's, of God's kingdom and his, his dominion and, and, really his way of of living and how okay i see that you got your shabby old gods that you worship you know mm-hmm. but um our god um elevates the way human life can actually operate and and, and so the side yes. of nations be like wow these these people get along or these families they stay together or they they mm-hmm. love each other and uh, you know and and so many different things so um but but to let i'll be honest with you to take it back to that it's really hard because most of us, including myself, grew up hearing a gospel of, of, I just say this prayer and God's happy with me. And, and as long as I, you know, keep asking his forgiveness, one day I'm going to get to heaven. Right. And it, it's, it's just, a, to me, it's, it's, I've spent my short, short little career in ministry combating that because it strips people of the joy of really knowing who the father is and really knowing their place in this world as, as a, as a member of his family. What Mm -hmm. are some things that uh, you would say to somebody who 
maybe is just coming into a relationship with God and maybe they haven't fully understood the gospel. How have you approached that um, talking to Christians? Well, probably what people have heard about the gospel is true in part, right? So it is true that I am a sinner in need of justification and that Christ's death is my substitution. And he, you know, he affects the atonement that I need to be reconciled to God. It is true on an individual level, but it's not just that. Salvation is so much bigger than that. It is about surrendering your life so that you can identify yourself as belonging to God, surrendering to God's rule in your life, acknowledging Jesus is the true king, and you are a citizen of his kingdom. You are a a son or daughter of God, and therefore that you represent him in the world. So it's about about surrender. It's about joining a, a family, a community, and it's about participating in his reign as it is unfolding in, in our world. One book that pairs really well with mine uh, that came out not too long before mine is called Gospel Allegiance by Matthew Bates. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. 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 He's a New Testament scholar. He is, is rethinking what is the gospel actually? And he investigates really carefully when the New Testament talks about the gospel, what is it? And I've done this with my students for years. You know, if you're reading the gospels, you you come to the place where Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. And they are told to go out and preach the good news. And the word good news in English comes from uh, the Greek euangelion, which is where we get the concept of the gospel. So the gospel is the good news. Notice Jesus is sending his disciples to preach the good news, but he himself has not died and risen yet. Hmm. So what are they preaching. (laughs) If the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose again so I can go to heaven when I die, then his disciples have nothing to say Mm. when they're going out. But in fact, he tells them to go out preaching the good news. And the good news that they're preaching is Jesus is king, Mm. that Yahweh has come among us. The kingdom of God is here. Mm. And so if our gospel can be limited to the events that happened on Holy Week, then we have missed the gospel. That is a big part of the gospel. Mm. It's part of the enacting of God's kingship, but it is not the whole story. So we need to to broaden that. And I think Matthew Bates does a really good job of showing the breadth of the gospel and what it it should mean for us as Christians. I'll I'll make sure to link that in the notes. Um, I've noticed that myself too. We, We celebrate the birth and then we celebrate the death. And then it's like we skip through this whole big old chunk of the gospels where Jesus is teaching, right. And he's talking and he's doing things and he's showing things. And, and it's, it's like, Oh, well that stuff is good, you know, but this is really, really counts right here. And it's, and, and, and you miss this idea. I think nowhere, I don't, I don't find it anywhere better than Luke and everyone's got their own preference, but I see, I, I see this picture of, of Luke, um, uh, you know, spending that last week going to Jerusalem and it's almost like God is returning again. Yes. And, and it's almost like the sense of this is the true, uh, this is the new Exodus, right? This is the, mm-hmm. this is uh, his return uh, to be, be king. And, and they're, yes. they're, this is the true rescue from exile. And it's, and, but if you don't, uh, if you, if you miss the rhythm of the gospels, I guess mm-hmm. I could say you, yep. you, you, it gets downgraded and then you're just left with, you know, thankfully Jesus died on the cross and there's just so much more in it. And Dr. Imes, I hate this because we're having such a great conversation and, and 
our time is short and I know I got to catch a, a, a flight here soon. And I think I'm going to have to get you back for, uh, for part two, because there's so much more about this, about this book. And I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in the future, but you said, you said something that I want to wrap on uh, a quote mm-hmm. that you made in your book. You said, you are who you are because of who he is and who mm-hmm. he says you are. You become your truest self as part of this extraordinary community of men and women who are being transformed from the inside out, who are becoming and living as his people. Mm-hmm. And would you say, do we find our story of who we are in the Old Testament? We do. I think, and I'll, I'll give you some bonus content here. This is not in the book, but I'm I'm working on a commentary on the book of Exodus for Baker Academic. And just yesterday, I spent my morning in Exodus chapter 3, which is where Moses meets God at Mount Sinai the first time, mm-hmm. where he, when he's shepherding sheep. And what's really fascinating to me is that in the first, well, in, in chapter 2, Moses isn't in chapter 1. In chapter 2 of Exodus, when we meet Moses, his identity is always in question. Who is this guy? Is he a Hebrew or is he an Egyptian? Mm-hmm. And as you kind of watch him as an adult— the narrator is sort of toying with the ambiguity of his, his identity. So he goes out to, it says in chapter two, verse 11, that he goes out to where his own people were and watch them at their labor. And then he, he feels a sense of um, need for justice, like needs to right the wrongs. So it says he goes out to his own people, but did he know they were his own people? Did he identify with them ethnically or just have compassion on them? It's not totally clear. And then when he flees and he lands in Midian and he helps these poor shepherdesses who are being bullied by the the bully shepherds, they go home and they tell their dad, an Egyptian rescued us today. So they see him as an Egyptian, even though he was sort of identifying with the Hebrews back in Egypt. So what's really interesting to me, as Moses meets Yahweh at Mount Sinai in chapter 3, verse 4, he sees the bush. He goes over because he's curious about it. And then in verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. So he knows Moses' name. Now, this is a name given to him by the daughter of Pharaoh. So it's, it's a name that sounds Egyptian. God's calling him this name. Moses says, here I am. And then he says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So we presume that he does. And then it says, Then he said, I am the God of your father. And I just sort of stopped there and went, ooh, how did Moses hear that? Yeah. Who is his father? Like at this point in the story, we've only had a passing mention in chapter two, verse one, to a man of the tribe of Levi, who is his, but then the rest of the chapter focuses on the women of the story. And we never hear a thing about Moses' birth father. We never hear a thing about Moses' adopted father either. So the daughter of Pharaoh, if she adopts him, is she married? And who is the man who would have raised Moses? We don't know. And so when he first says, I am the God of your father, singular, is Moses like having a question mark in his mind? Like, which one? Is he having a breakdown? What's going on? Like, who is this? And then it's, and then God specifies the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in that moment, I mean, we just kind of whiz by it because we hear that, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so many times in the Old Testament. But think if you're Moses and you actually are wrestling with, who am I? Where do I belong? When he, when he got to Midian 
his wife gives birth in uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Zipporah gave, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, or Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Even his son's name exhibits his own sense of not belonging. He's this fringe person throughout the narrative, and we don't know his identity. But when he meets Yahweh, he has the moment where he finds out who he truly is. And that is through knowing who Yahweh is. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, I know all about you. I know your birth father. I know you. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in that one moment, as he meets Yahweh, he meets himself as well and finds out his identity. That's so beautiful. And I just think that's exactly what happens to all of us when we meet God in the Old Testament. As he reveals himself, we find out, oh, this is our story, a story that stretches back farther than Moses himself can remember. Did he even know who Abraham was? Mm. And Isaac and Jacob, like, how would he have even known the stories of his ancestors? I don't know. But somehow God is linking him with that story and saying, this is who you are. And then and then he commissions Moses. It's just one last bonus. He commissions Moses and Moses says, Moses expresses that he does not feel up to the task. So he's, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And the answer to that question is, I will be with you. Mm. Moses wants to know, who am I to, that, that you would choose me? And the answer to the question is, I will be with you. In other words, it doesn't matter who Moses is. Yeah. It only matters who God is and who Moses is in relation to God. That's so and good. that's what defines him. That's so good. Wow. And And what we as Christians can take from that is that, our revelation of ourselves is found in the community of God's people who bear his yes. name and in the revelation of God himself through his son, Jesus. And we yes. get to discover this amazing identity that the world is not packaging up and selling you in a book or right. teaching you in school. Right. And, and you have, a, and most Christians, we experience this, this breakdown of identity to rediscover who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you find yourself in this liminal space right now in your life where you are rediscovering some things. God's uh, mm-hmm. taking things out of you. And I want to encourage you to kind of support what Dr. Imes wrote uh, in this book is to embrace that season. Allow mm-hmm. God to do his work in you yes. and embrace this amazing, crazy, radical plan called the gospel of Jesus mm-hmm. and following him. Um, what an amazing work you put out. If you're listening to this, please, please, please do not hesitate. Click the link in the notes. Buy this book, Bearing God's Name, Why Why Sinai Still Matters. And like Dr. Aim said, if you're a nerd, you can get the, the more academic version as well. Get both, I would suggest. Skim through this one. It's a nice, easy read. Get the, get the uh, academic one if you want to nerd out. But uh, I strongly recommend that you check it out. And I if if... Dr. Imes is gracious enough. would love to have her come back and, and, and unpack sure. this a little bit more. But thank you so much for your time. I know that you have a busy schedule. Uh, thank you for being gracious enough to be on the show. Uh, and Dr. Imes, you want to leave us with anything else before we leave? Mm-hmm. Sure. Just I love what you I love how you tied in this idea of what God does in us in liminal space. I've often said that God has work to do in us that can only be done in a state of dislocation. And it's when our life is unsettled that we are most susceptible to lies 
about ourselves. And as you read the book of Exodus, you see many times where the people are believing lies. Yahweh brought us out from there to put us to death in the wilderness. Or, or we see in Numbers that the people are accusing Moses of bringing them up out of the land of milk and honey to put them to death in the wilderness. They've reconfigured things so that the promised land is no longer the land of milk and honey. It's the land they came from, that place where they were slaves. That was milk and honey. And we are all in danger of believing the wrong narrative. And that's why we just got to keep sinking ourselves back into scripture so that we can see God face to face and he can tell us who we really are. Amen. So beautiful. So beautiful. Well, Dr. Ams, thank you again for your time. It was an honor. Appreciate you. Look forward to hopefully having you back soon. Yes, sounds good. Thank you for tuning in to the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at mcarrollnow. Have a great day. Until next time.